Today's episode of Word on Fire with Bishop Robert Barron is an encore presentation and originally aired September 2nd, 2019. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire and joining us fresh off of his retreat with all the other priests of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, welcome. Hey, Brandon. Always good to hear from you. Always good to see you. You too. Now tell us, you you just got together with some 400 priests from around the Archdiocese. Uh, what, what was the atmosphere like? What did you guys do? Good, good. We were in uh, Palm Desert, which is about 130 miles east of LA, but a place that could accommodate all of us. And it was um, a chance to kind of renew our priesthood in the wake of the scandals and to talk through this period. And the focus really was on that, was how do we um, move forward and, and how do we renew our sense of um, what our priesthood is about? So we heard some talks. We had liturgies, of course. Um, we had blessed sacrament adoration. We had confession. But we also had a lot of time in these table conversations, talking among ourselves. Chance to socialize. And we're a huge archdiocese. So priests all over the place. There are lots of us. And we're from a lot of different backgrounds. And uh so we need to get to know each other a little bit better. And that was part of the purpose of the day. So they were they were very good days, I thought. Uh, it was super hot. When I arrived in Palm Desert, it was 114 degrees. So when I pulled in, you basically stayed inside, you know, in your air-conditioned space. Because uh, I, I walked a couple times outside and forget it. I just said, I can't handle this. Uh, when I came home, it was it, I left as 105 when I got back to Santa Barbara, it was 75. <laughs> so it was a 40 degree difference, you know, or 30. What was the feeling like among the other priests there? Now, you know, we're a year, year and a half into this latest sexual abuse crisis. What, what was your view of how many of these priests are handling it? I, it was good. And I say this, I mentioned this to Archbishop Gomez. Our original plan was to go last year, but the McCarrick thing broke right around this time, remember uh, last year. And so we made the decision, let's postpone it. And that was a really good decision because I think if we had gone last year, we would have been right in the kind of white heat of the of the controversy. And I think there would have been, I don't know, maybe a lot of you know, anger and frustration and that sort of thing. Having had a year to work through it, I think was really helpful to our uh, work. Another thing that surprised me, I must say, uh, we all got a little swag bag, you know, when we arrived, like with a, with a, shirt or something and, and information. And also in it was um, uh, my letter to a suffering church. And I didn't realize they were going to do that, but all the priests uh, got a copy of it. So that did come up a bit in the conversation. That's a good chance to mention the letter to a suffering church. We haven't updated our podcast listeners in a while about that little book, but um, the numbers have been so encouraging to us. I think it's been ordered by over 3,000 parishes. Um, we've distributed- oh, It's over 4,000 now. 4,000 is the yeah. latest. And then close yeah. to, I think, 900,000 copies were right around there. Um, As so of you, yesterday, we passed 900,000 copies sold. That's incredible. Marvelous. Yeah. Now, again, uh, you can get a free copy. You just pay shipping and handling by visiting uh, sufferingchurchbook.com. That's the website. And 100% of the proceeds and profits go to support charities that help victims of sexual abuse. So uh, right. it's a no-brainer. If you haven't received your copy yet, go ahead and get your free copy. Okay. The topic of today's episode is what makes us happy what makes us happy bishop i think it was wasn't it thomas aquinas who said something like finally everybody seeks happiness that that's the one thing everybody wants sure it goes back to aristotle and the, the ancients 
uh, I find intriguing, Brandon, prior to the modern shift where the sciences took over and kind of explaining the mechanics of the world became the dominant intellectual concern, uh, moving from final causality in Aristotle, which was the prime you know, cause, to efficient causality. Okay. But prior to that shift, I think it's fair to say the brightest people in the West were concerned above all with the question of happiness. What makes me happy? Or to change the language a bit, what's the good life? It's very interesting, of course, I've often said that when Jefferson says it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's a typically modern move because what he's saying basically is, I don't know what real happiness is, and I'm not going to tell you because I don't know, and, and we all disagree about it, so at least allow me to pursue it as I see fit. That's a modern move. Prior to, to modernity, boy, people were very interested in determining what makes us happy. And I think that's dead right and corresponds to what remains the great abiding concern of the human heart. We're going to get into some of the specific figures throughout Western history, Plato, Aristotle, Jesus, Augustine Aquinas, and what all these people thought about happiness. But to start off with, I wanted to use as a springboard a recent podcast episode from the Freakonomics podcast. So this is kind of like a popular economics uh, podcast. And they did a whole episode on how to be happy. And they based it around the annual United Nations World Happiness Report. Mm. So the United Nations surveys countries from all over the world and ranks them in order of happiness. Now, I won't get into the details of what criteria they're using, but what's interesting is that every single year, the Scandinavian countries top the list. So you have Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, Finland, Every year they've been in the top 10. Um, now, researchers attribute some of that to high job rates, strong levels of social trust. They have universal health care, universal education, all that kind of stuff. But for our purposes, what's most striking to me is that the most happiest countries in these surveys also tend to be the least religious, that there's sort of an inverse correlation. On the flip side, in the United Nations report, the African countries inevitably always rank at the bottom, yet those are also the most religious. Um, I guess, first of all, what do you make between this connection between the purportedly happiest countries being the least religious? Well, a couple of things. One is I'm very suspicious that what's driving that is the classic sort of secularization hypothesis, which has been disproven about a million point four times, but yet comes back again and again. Namely, well, you know, as society advances, becomes more sophisticated and complex, uh, religion will fade away. And then, you know, relatedly, this thing of the less religious we are, the actually the happier we are. And, and then if you're unhappy, that gives rise to religion as a sort of compensation. And so it's both the secularization hypothesis and the great Marxist hypothesis that it's our deep unhappiness economically and so on that gives rise to religion. So, I mean, right away, I'm very suspicious of those correlations. But here's the second thing, which I think is even more important. How do we measure happiness and what are we targeting as we measure it? Uh, the things you mentioned about the Scandinavian countries, well, they all have to do with you know our, our physical well-being, what makes life comfortable. And nothing wrong with that, of course. Those are legitimate things to be concerned about. We're all concerned about comfort. Uh, the very fact that as we record these words, these are among the few days in Santa Barbara, California, when you really need air conditioning. And no one has it up here because it's so beautiful most of the year. We don't need air conditioning. But today I do. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of uncomfortable. 
Would I like to be more comfortable and have air conditioning in the house? Yeah, sure. Nothing wrong with that. So seeking our physical comfort, yeah, it's part of what it means to be happy. But it's such a narrow construal of the criteria of happiness, you know. Go back to, I'll give you a quick story. Um, uh, one of the spiritual masters talks about this, I've written since the 20th century, about um, uh, this fellow he met in India who was abjectly poor. In fact, so poor that in advance of his own death, he had sold his skeleton. He sold, <laughs> he sold his skeleton to someone who said, look, after you die, can I use it for whatever purpose, for science or something? And so he did. But, but the point was, when, when this, when this uh, writer met that man, he said, he was the happiest person I've ever known. And it was making this point that he, at the level of physical comfort, he was about as low as you can get on planet Earth. But yet he was, at the same time, radiantly happy. There's something more going on. See, and that's the point. And I'm very wary of these surveys that say, oh, oh the happiest countries are where people have the most physical satisfaction. Well, yeah, that's a very, very narrow bit of the happiness spectrum, if you want, that's being measured. All right. Well, if the United Nations survey gets happiness wrong or maybe is misguided about happiness, let's let's look at how many people over the last several centuries have defined happiness. Let's start by going all the way back to the ancients, to Plato and Aristotle. How would these great philosophers have understood happiness? Well, Plato is a very interesting case. Uh, we've all read The Republic, you know, in Philosophy 101. And uh, the great argument there is that happiness, for want of a better term, would come, Plato would say, from a kind of interior justice. What I mean is a balance of the basic elements that make up the soul. So remember, he, he looks at it in, in a very broad political manner first and looks at the three classes of society. You know, the workers, and then there, there's the military class, there's the ruling class. And when those three classes are in proper harmonic relationship, each doing its proper task in the right harmony, something like justice obtains in the city. So he says, now let's, let's uh, telescope it down to the individual. When the three elements of the soul or the, of the person, you know, the, the more uh, material and sensual desires, the spirited element and the intellectual element, when they all come together in their right harmony, something like happiness emerges. You might say what we just were complaining about is a reduction of happiness to the satisfaction of the, of the working class, you know, the satisfaction of, of the lowest element within the self, the, the sensual desires. But see, for Plato, happiness in the fullest sense comes from opening up much wider horizons of one's life. Now, take a quick look at Aristotle. Aristotle, of course, is very concerned about happiness. He makes it the central uh, focus of his Nicomachean ethics. And this has a big impact on the West, including Thomas Aquinas. Eudaimonia is his Greek term. And it's interesting, daimon, our demon comes from that, but it means like a spirit. EU, right? EU, like euthanasia and so on. It means uh, a happy spirit or having a, having a positive uh, spirit within you. So what's eudaimonia? Aristotle considers various options, but then he says, finally, eudaimonia is the activity of one's soul in accord with perfect virtue. Because he says, look, what makes human beings happy, qua human beings, has to be a function of something that's unique to us. 
So if we say, well, look, you know, monkeys and lions and, and tigers also seek sensual satisfaction, right? They seek food and drink and sex and comfort and protection. Well, if that's all I'm seeking, I'm at the level of an animal, right? So says Aristotle, what's distinctive to us, namely intellection and mind. So our happiness should be coordinated to that. Hence, activity of the soul, the higher faculty, but now what kind of activity? In accord with perfect virtue, avoiding the extremes on both sides, walking the middle path of virtue. So that's Aristotle. Now, he also knows, and this is important, that you know, he knows physical well-being, comfort, has something to do with happiness. That's why he says you can't really say someone's happy till he's dead. <laughs> See, the, the point was, hey, I, I'm, I've got physical comfort taken care of. I'm, I'm a virtuous person. I'm well-liked uh, in my society. But, but tomorrow, a terrible disease could befall me. Tomorrow, I could lose all my money. Tomorrow, I could, I could uh, be caught up in a terrible war. So I can't really pronounce someone happy till he's dead. I can say that was a happy man, right? But Aristotle, what I like about him is he does name the soul level is where we should look for eudaimonia, but also acknowledges the other dimensions too. Let's move from Greece to ancient Israel. Uh, before the time of Christ, how would the Jewish people have understood happiness? I'd say following God's law. They would say God's given us the law. Uh, this path to walk, and the path is governed by God's will. I'd say a surrender to the divine will makes you happy. And you know, the biblical Jews knew all about the sufferings of life. I mean, they they knew that. They also read the Psalms. I mean, they knew about uh, having a, a full table and have plenty of wine to drink, and, and your children gathered around you, and you know all that physical well being. But I'd say finally they would have said. Following Torah, the, the man who follows Torah is a happy man. So then Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus speaks about happiness all over the place. Happy are you who are poor, happy are you when you're persecuted. What, what new insights does Jesus bring into happiness? How does he define happiness? Well, you're right in putting your finger on the Beatitudes and, and you know, Beatitudo in Latin means happiness. That's our, our word. Makarios is the Greek that's used there. Uh, happy, blessed, uh, lucky. Some have even said how lucky you are. Now, what's different about Jesus? Think of this line also from the sermon. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the rest will be given unto you. What makes you happy is seeking above all God's will for you, which is righteousness, which is right order. Once you found that, Jesus is implying, the other dimensions of your life will tend to fall into right uh, harmony and order around it. Go back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And there's that same idea. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So should I be seeking first uh, food and drink and sex and shelter and comfort? No, no. Seek first the kingdom of God. Should I seek first even uh, like intellectual attainment? No, no, that's fine. But seek first the kingdom of God. And then the rest will be given unto you. Your life will now find its proper harmony and order around that center. You know, let me, I've been kind of hinting at this with these various figures. Let me say it explicitly now. 
I've always loved the distinction. It's in Pascal and then Kierkegaard really mirrors or, or mimics Pascal. Pascal talks about body, mind, and heart as three dimensions. Think of them as concentric circles, maybe body in the middle and then surrounded by mind, which is surrounded by heart. What does he mean? Body would be that whole range of, of sensual desires that we have, right? To keep the body comfortable and, and well-fed and protected and, and joy and, and, and pleasured, right? Good, good. Nothing wrong with that. We're, we're embodied creatures. But how sad, Pascal says, when someone gets stuck at that level. That's all I ever seek. Now, I could do it in a smart way and a more mature way, but I'm still at the level of a baby. Think of a little baby. That's all the baby wants is, is sensual satisfaction. That's all the baby wants. I could become a very, very, very smart, sophisticated baby. You know what I'm saying? If my whole life is still a quest for comfort, pleasure, uh, uh, food, drink, sex, protection, right? Now, what happens, Pascal says, in a mature person is you move beyond the mere concern for the body to level of the mind. Now, what's that? Think of now all the, the wonderful range of, of intellectual and more spiritual goods. When you begin to read for the first time and these worlds open up to you, the, the glory of, of, of philosophy and physics and science and mathematics and everything else, right? The, the more refined pleasures of the mind. I think maybe even on this show, I've told that story. I've always loved it, of this little group of Dominicans arriving uh, at Paris. And Thomas Aquinas is in that group. And they come to a rise just before they enter the city of Paris. And they see displayed the skyline of medieval Paris, which, by the way, I'd love to see. And when I get to heaven, I'll ask God, show me what medieval Paris looked like, you know. But one of the young friars says, oh, what what wouldn't you give to have all of this? And Aquinas said, I'd give it all for Chrysostom's commentary on Matthew. <laughs> and so that shows you someone who's moved beyond the merely physical, right? Because like Paris and all its splendor, okay, that would mean physical comfort at various levels, right? But but Aquinas can say, no, I'm, I'd, I'd give all that. I'd eschew all of that for the, the intellectual delight of this long lost manuscript. Okay. So body, now mind, but now go next up, Pascal, heart. And again, it's, it's misleading. He, heart does not mean, as we tend to mean, emotions. Emotions belong to the body. And again, they're great. I love emotions, but we're not talking about just making me emotionally happy. That's a relatively low level kind of happiness. Heart, and his French would have been cœur, right? Le cœur, and cœur sounds like core, doesn't it? And that's the idea. The heart would be that very deepest, most powerful and abiding dimension of my life that connects me to God and the things of God. Um, and I'm shifting metaphors, but I'm doing body, mind, heart, but you could do it going down deeper, deeper, right? Body is relatively surface concern. The mind is deeper, but then the deepest of all is le coeur, the core, the heart, right? The deepest happiness is the happiness that, that addresses the heart. Now, go back to Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
Seek first what makes le cœur happy. And the rest will be given unto you. You'll, you'll find that your intellectual passions and your bodily passions find their proper place once you've found le cœur. That's why, you know, I've spoken often of those three paths of holiness. The first one being find the center. That's what I'm talking about. Find le cœur. Merton's thing, you know, or the, the point in me where I'm here and now being created by God. That's le cœur. Le point vierge, as Merton calls it, right? The, the virginal point. That's that, that great tradition. And it's Pascal, but it goes right back to the Lord Jesus himself. And true happiness, and I know every single person listening or watching, we all have that in common. We all want that, right? That's the deepest and most abiding answer. I'm not eschewing the bodily or the intellectual, the cultural. Those are all important. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, your relationship to the Lord God. And then you will find true happiness that radiates out through all the different dimensions of your life. All right, let's go from Jesus to some of his followers over the last several centuries that have tried to unpack and formulate exactly what he's driving at. I want to focus on three happy people in particular, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, and then in the 20th century, maybe the most joyful, happy man I know of that time, G.K. Chesterton. Each of them thought and wrote extensively on the topic of happiness. So let's start with Augustine. What did Augustine have to say about happiness? Well, keep in mind, first of all, I, I mentioned Pascal and Kierkegaard, both of whom are deeply indebted to Augustine of Hippo. Augustine, I mean, in many ways, the mastermind of our great tradition, right? What do you find? See, I recommend it to any, any seeker. Especially get um, Maria Balding's translation of the uh, Confessions, which makes it read like a novel, I think. Here's a story of this young guy, you know, accomplished and educated and refined. And what's he seeking? He's seeking happiness, what we all seek. How did he seek it first? Well, the way most of us do, through sensual pleasure. Look at the young Augustine, right? As he says so beautifully in the opening uh, books of the Confessions, that he sought joy in, in all the the beautiful things that God has made, you know, and he meant, he meant uh, uh, the sensual world. He also meant the sensual pleasure of sexuality and everything else. He was like um, a lot of people today who are seeking happiness in uh, the sensual world. Then he became more refined and, and began to seek happiness through intellectual pursuits. Once he was introduced to Cicero um, and then the philosophical tradition, then he's drawn into the, the Manichees, and, and he goes down all kinds of intellectual paths seeking happiness until finally he comes. That's the whole trajectory of the Confessions. He comes to uh, Milan and St. Ambrose, and through the prayers of his mother, he comes to the Catholic faith and concludes, what? Only in God right, is my soul at rest. Lord, you've made us for yourself, and therefore our heart, mind you, the cœur, right? He would have said core in his Latin. The core is restless till it rests in thee. So the, the core of you is seeking God ultimately. And it looks for love in all the wrong places, as the song says, right? I'm seeking it all over. But it, it's, it's restless until it rests in God. So Augustine is, is, the, is the one behind Kierkegaard and, and Pascal, and any seeker, any seeker, which means any person, 
I think resonates deeply with that story because most of us walk some version of it ourselves. Um, come to the same place that Augustine found. That's where happiness is. How about Thomas Aquinas? I know in his great masterwork, the Summa Theologia, he's got whole sections dedicated to the topic of happiness, dozens of articles in the second part of the Summa on it. What does Thomas Aquinas say about how to find happiness? Well, first an observation, you know, to those who might be tempted to say the Catholic moral life, it's all about laws and prohibitions, right? Church says no all the time. Don't do this. Don't do that. Thomas broaches the question of law in the in the Prima Secundae, the first part of the second part of the Summa, right? He broaches it for the first time, law, in question 90, 90. That means he's asked 89 questions before he gets to the law. What are the first ones he asks? He asks, what's the nature of beatitudo? And see, everybody, thereupon hangs a very important tale. The Catholic moral life does not begin with the law and with prohibition, despite the popular uh, characterization. It begins with clarity about happiness. Now, reread those questions. What you're going to get there is a uh, scholastic academic version of the confessions because Thomas will say, let's see, does Beatitudo consist in, you know, sensual pleasure? And then he'll tell the reasons why that can't be true. Okay. Does it consist in wealth? Does it consist in power? Does it consist in honor? And the answer keeps coming back. No, 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 no. Until finally he comes to, it can only consist in what corresponds to the deepest longing of the heart namely the infinite God. So read the confessions for the kind of novelistic version of this. Read Thomas for the very kind of strictly intellectual version of it, but it's the same answer. Namely, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, where did both Augustine and Thomas get their ethics from? The Sermon on the Mount. They're they're both commenting on Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the rest will be given unto you. I think if, if you had shown Augustine or Thomas the Scandinavian surveys, you know, about, well, we're the happiest countries because we have the best health care. We have, we have the best, you know, I mean, I'm making fun of best health care. Fine. That's great. But man, that's such a low level understanding of what happiness consists in. And, and, and what if you told Augustine or Thomas, oh, by the way, these people are, are very unreligious. He said, well, I mean, I don't care what they tell these pollsters. Trust me, they're unhappy. If they've shut down that dimension of life, trust me, these are unhappy societies. No matter how happy they might be at the sensual level, they're not truly in possession of beatitudo, you know? All right. We've looked at it from the novelistic perspective in Augustine, from the philosophical perspective in Aquinas. How about the personification of happiness and the figure of <laughs> G.K. Chesterton? I, I know you've read a lot of Chesterton, so have I. What, how did Chesterton view happiness? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think you're, you're right, Brandon, first of all, in saying what a beautiful uh, icon of happiness Chesterton is. I've used that image of it's like uh, every page of Chesterton is like opening a bottle of champagne because it's just so lively and tasty and intoxicating, you know, but it's every picture of Chesterton is like that. Every account of Chesterton is like that, that he himself embodied the joy that we're talking about. Because look at, 
this, first of all, the size of Chesterton. He was a guy that liked sensual pleasure. You know, this is not some Manichaean puritanical figure. He liked food and drink, and he liked dancing on tables after a, a night of eating and drinking. I mean, so this is a man of enormous sensual delight. More to it, a man of, of staggering intellectual uh, attainment and, and the pleasure he took. Right, the sheer joy he took in reading these great figures and commenting on everyone from you know Dickens to Thomas Aquinas, intellectual pleasure, this delight, and and this very deepest joy that comes from le cœur, from the heart, from from the connection to God, and see that's what animated the whole of Chesterton's life was that he had the kingdom of God first, and then the rest were kind of deliciously given unto him as well. So he's a he's a beautiful icon of the Augustinian and Thomistic path, both of which go back to Jesus. What's that quote, though, Brandon? Because we, we both stumbled on it this morning from Chesterton. It's so good. There's a quote. I, I have it pulled up in front of me here. In his study of Charles Dickens, uh, Chesterton was responsible for much of the Dickensian revival. Uh, but he says there, Happiness is a state of the soul, a state in which our natures are full of the wine of an ancient youth, in which banquets last forever and roads lead everywhere, where all things are under the exuberant leadership of faith, hope, and charity. Wow. There's, I didn't know that quote before this morning. <laughs> There's no better summary of everything we've been talking about, right? Uh, state of the soul thing, that's very Aristotelian, right? It, it's got to be a state of soul. But look what he does there is under the leadership of faith, hope, and charity, the theological virtues, which do what? They connect us to God. That's what those three things do. They connect us to God. Once that's in place, they're like the leaders of a great parade. Once your your connection to God is clear, then sensual pleasure and and the roads lead everywhere to every type of attainment and interest but all of it under the leadership of faith hope and charity the theological virtues connecting me to god um i've told people this over the years if a genie came out of a bottle right or let's put it in a christian context if, if an angel appeared to you and said I, I will give you three wishes right what do you ask for and i mean this now with dead seriousness the only thing, in fact, that it's three is wonderful, I think, that you should ask for are faith, hope, and love. Because anything else you ask for under that rubric will turn to ashes eventually. I mean that literally, but also it'll turn to ashes in you psychologically. But you ask for faith, hope, and love, you got what Chesterton is talking about. You got the, the, the quality that will now make your whole life a place of joy even when you don't have a lot of sensual pleasure or intellectual pleasure, even when you're under persecution. Look now at the lives of the saints, right? So if the angel comes and asks you, that's the answer. Say, I'd like faith, hope, and love, please, and then I'll be totally happy. Or Thomas Aquinas in the model that I chose when I became a bishop, right? When the Lord himself said, what do you want, Thomas? Non nisite domine. I want nothing except you. Good. That's a guy super clear about what makes us happy. Let's close with this practical question. Suppose someone listening to this came up to you, Bishop, and said, you know, at the end of the day, right now, I'm not happy. You know, my life's a mess. There's darkness swirling inside of me. 
what should I do concretely right now to become happier? Perform the simplest act of love. Um, we've been using a lot of highfalutin language, but go right back to the Bible again. God is love. Faith, hope, and charity connect me to God. That means they connect me to the source of all love, right? When we love, we participate in the very to be of God. So you're lost, you're depressed, you, you feel you've, you've uh, lost your way. Perform even the simplest act of love, which means willing the good of somebody else. That's, you know what that is? That's the first step. That's step one on the road to happiness. Then do another one. Then do another one. And then do another one. Until eventually the whole of your life becomes simply an attempt to perform acts of love. Um, now you're on the road of happiness. All right, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. Today we have a question from Radmilla in Richmond, California, asking about why we see so much violence and competition in nature among God's creation. Here's the question. Hi, Bishop Barron. This is Brad Miller in Richmond, California. There is competition and annihilation in nature, I mean, among animals and plants. How do you reconcile this with a God of peace who created and is still creating the world? Yeah, good. Thank you. I think it hinges upon a distinction. Uh, what you're describing would be just a basic dynamic uh, we find in nature. That life lives on life. I remember Joseph Campbell put it that way. I mean, life lives on life. Animals consume each other and so on. We consume plants, which are living things, et cetera. So that happens in nature. Violence is something other than that. Violence is a, is a form of cruelty. It's a willed desire to harm right someone else. So animals aren't violent. They're, they can be, they kill each other, you know, but to say they're violent would be a kind of projection of our psychology and, and spirituality onto animals. So I would say nature is not violent. It's, um, it's marked by this conflictual quality, as you quite rightly say. But um, we can be violent. And that is indeed out of step with uh, God's nature and what God wants for us. So I, just, I guess I'd make that little uh, distinction that would bring some clarity. Well, as we wrap up this episode, if you're looking for another way to be happier, I invite you to check out the brand new Word on Fire Institute journal. It's titled Evangelization and Culture. It's a, a new publication we've just released. Um, Bishop, do you want to say maybe a word about it? Oh, I love it. Uh, the first edition came out. It's beautiful to look at. Uh, even the pages themselves, I think, are beautiful. The design is extraordinary. The content is great. Uh, a mixture of academic and spiritual and more pastoral. Uh, it's designed for our Word on Fire Institute members. So it's it's not so much like, you know, just for the general public. It's for those who are willing to make this commitment to be part of the Word on Fire Institute. And the journal is providing guidance and inspiration, uplift information to them. Um, so it's a, that's a little plug, you know, join the Institute and you'll get this gorgeous journal, which had come out, it's four times a year, right, Brandon? Or three times, four times a four year. Four times. And it's, boy, it, I think it's in itself worth the price of admission, but uh, it's for those who are willing to make a commitment to become evangelizers themselves. 
So you can learn more about it and see samples from the journal at the website wordonfireshow.com slash journal. But as one who is subscribed to many magazines and periodical journals, I can say this is by far the most beautifully designed journal I've ever seen. And it doesn't compromise on intellectual substance either. It's smart and beautiful. So check it out, wordonfireshow.com slash journal. Well, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you guys next week on the Word on Fire show. You've been listening to an encore presentation of Word on Fire with Bishop Robert Barron. Today's episode originally aired September 2nd, 2019.